Welcome back to the second episode of the U.S. Naval History Podcast. I'm your host, Chase Dalton. This week, we'll pick up where we left off after American independence and take you through the quasi-war against France and the U.S. Navy actions in the First Barbary War against the pirate states of North Africa, featuring bribery, coups, battles, and the story of what legendary British Admiral Nelson called the most bold and daring act of the age. So after independence, the Continental Army largely disbanded and the militias returned to their fields and families. Privateers became merchantmen, and the few surviving ships of the Continental Navy were sold off. The last ship in the new nation's navy, the Alliance of Flamborough Head Infamy, was auctioned off in 1785 and entered service as a merchantman in the rapidly growing China trade. The United States of America would not have a single ship in her navy for the next 12 years. The weak government formed under the Articles of Confederation could simply not afford a navy, even if there had been public support for such a large and continuous expense in the first place. Meanwhile, the shipping industry, which patriotic propagandists had promised would flourish after the removal of British taxes and trade restrictions, now had to face the hard reality of no longer being part of the British trading system. Export access to Britain's hungry West India slave colonies devoted to the production of sugar and coffee had amounted for more than two-thirds of American agricultural exports. No longer part of the British Empire, these ports were now closed to American flagged ships after the Peace of Paris. British merchants by law could no longer have their ships built in American shipyards, which collapsed the American shipbuilding industry. With Europe at peace and traditional export markets closed, American trade volumes fell by more than half, and New England in particular fell into a deep post-war economic depression. It was this depression which caused the debt-ridden farmers in western Massachusetts, led by Revolutionary War veteran Daniel Shea, to rise up in what is today called Shea's Rebellion, which helped propel the replacement of the weak Articles of Confederation with the Constitution that we all use, with the addition of 27 amendments, today. Among the powers that the Constitution grants Congress is the ability to provide and maintain a Navy. The second major effect that the Constitution had on American commerce was that while flying an American flag from your mast may have made a seaman's heart fill with patriotic pride, it also left the ships without protection of the Royal Navy, a fact that the British publicized widely. It soon became clear that the Stars and Stripes were only ever seen atop defenseless merchantmen and never atop warships. Almost immediately after independence, American shipping began suffering at the hands of the Barbary pirates, known as the Corsairs, of North Africa. The Barbary states of Tripoli, Tunis, Algiers, and Morocco were nominally part of the Ottoman Empire, but in reality were largely autonomous. With their backs to the desert and very little agriculture or industry, the traditional livelihood of these city-states was piracy, along with the enslavement of crews against foreign merchantmen who plied the Mediterranean. Most European powers tolerated the Barbary states and made an annual tribute to the four pirate states because it was cheaper than pursuing a war and actually defending the trade routes in time of peace. After independence, the news of the horrible conditions captured American crews were being held in as slave laborers caused public demand for a solution, somewhat hypocritically considering the thriving African slave trade in the colonies. Negotiations dragged on for years, with Congress unwilling to either pay the tribute or to fund a navy capable of forcing the corsairs to heal. In the meantime, 
American merchantmen steered clear of the Mediterranean trade routes. Unfortunately, the scourge of Mediterranean piracy would not stay limited in the Mediterranean for long. In 1789, the Bastille was stormed and the French Revolution, precipitated in part by the war debt and subsequent taxes caused by France's wars with Britain, was initially welcomed and seen by the American public as a sign that our ideals were spreading. Soon, however, pride transformed into disgust as the French Revolution devolved into a bloody mess and drew Europe again into war. In 1793, British diplomats convinced the Portuguese to enter into an anti-French coalition. The Portuguese had previously been blockading the Straits of Gibraltar, which form a choke point into and out of the Mediterranean against Algerian pirate ships. To free up resources for a fight against the French, the Portuguese signed a treaty with the largest Barbary state, Algiers, allowing the previously blockaded Algerian pirate fleet of eight ships to sail past the Straits of Gibraltar and into the Atlantic. In just the first three weeks, 10 American ships were captured. American merchant captains panicked and demanded action from the government. This was inopportune timing for a piracy scourge because along with the war in Europe came an immense demand for American exports and the opening of European ports for American goods of all types. George Washington, then just starting his second term as president, embraced strict neutrality which would allow the nation to flourish economically if only the problem of the Corsairs could be solved. But simultaneously, it wasn't clear that neutrality would be possible. The sea turned increasingly lawless as two warring superpowers of France and Britain took advantage of America's weakness and stopped our merchants at will under the pretense of stopping the flow of war materiel to enemy ports. The question of what to do about the Algerian situation raged in Congress in early 1794, with the early Federalists, led by Washington's Treasury Secretary Alexander Hamilton, supporting a fleet as cheaper in the long run than the endless tribute and lost trade due to piracy against the supporters of Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, who feared that a standing army or navy was the first step on the slippery slope to tyranny. After months of debate, Congress allocated the then vast sum of almost $700,000 for the construction of six frigates, which can be thought of as the founding of the United States Navy, although most of those who voted for it at the time thought of it less as the beginnings of a permanent establishment than a temporary force to solve an immediate problem. With a charge to build six ships, Secretary of War and revolutionary hero Henry Knox turned to the Philadelphia Quaker Joshua Humphreys. Humphreys was a well-respected shipwright and designed an innovative and controversial set of frigates, which were bigger and more heavily armed than European frigates, but fast enough to run away from the larger European ships of the line. In other words, it could outgun anything it couldn't outrun. Clearly, Humphreys had future conflicts in mind, despite the immediate pirate threat, which even light frigates would have been more than enough to deal with. In an early example of pork barrel politics via federal procurement, each of the six frigates were somewhat inefficiently built in six different shipyards. Humphreys was an exacting designer and ordered the ships constructed out of southern live oak, the best wood in the world for shipbuilding and found only in the southern United States, despite the wood being notoriously hard to obtain and work with. Everyone involved in the work grew to hate it. Massively behind schedule and over budget, two years later, the frigates were still very far from complete when in February of 1796, a diplomatic solution was reached with Algiers. It cost almost a million dollars in tribute, bribes, ransoms, and a promise to the day of Algiers that the United States would give him a 32-gun warship. 
It was an embarrassing admission of weakness, but the Senate ratified the treaty without debate, with the immediate threat of piracy supposedly over. A compromise was reached in Congress that allowed construction of three of the frigates to continue, while the other three would be abandoned to rot in their stocks. Meanwhile, the French Revolution continued its descent into savagery, and the early popular support that the cause of revolutionary France had in America diminished. The official relationship between the French and American governments also declined. The Treaty of 1778, which brought France into our side on the Revolutionary War, had been a mutual defense treaty. And since at the time, the rebelling states were in a war with Britain, France immediately declared war on Britain in our defense. The mutual defense provisions remained in effect after the war, and when revolutionary France was attacked by a British-led coalition, the United States declined to become involved in a major European war and stood on the diplomatic technicality that we had signed a treaty with the previous monarchy government of France and not with the new revolutionary government, and thus were not obligated to get involved. When the United States signed the Jay Treaty of 1795 with Great Britain, the French were even more outraged by its pro-British and thus anti-French terms. The Directorate, the latest in a long line of revolutionary French governments, cut off relations with the United States in 1795 and immediately authorized French privateers to capture American merchantmen trading with Great Britain. They were hugely successful, and knowing that there was nothing to fear from the non-existent American Navy, conducted raids along the American coast and even up into our rivers and bays. France steadily expanded the authority of its navy to intercept American shipping, and soon the French were engaged in a full-scale gros-de-course war against American trade. Here John Adams, who was recently elected as the second president of the United States, had few options. None of the frigates were ready to go to sea yet, and the national opinion was bitterly divided about what should be done. Adams decided to make one last attempt at diplomacy, while work continued to float and equip the three authorized frigates, despite the growing frustration across the political spectrum at the continued and mounting delays and cost overruns, a tradition of military procurement that has proceeded virtually uninterrupted into today. Finally, in the spring of 1796, diplomatic news arrived from France, and it was not good. Not only had the American diplomatic party been treated poorly, the French seemed uninclined to stop the attacks. Privateering was an important source of revenue for the state, and the recent string of battlefield victories by a young Corsican general named Napoleon had given the French an arrogant attitude. When the American diplomats finally were seen, a huge bribe was demanded before negotiations even began in what became known as the XYZ Affair. The leaked news of the mistreatment and bribery demands incited the American public and Congress into action. Congress authorized 12 smaller warships for the Navy and more money to equip the Humphreys frigates in preparation for war. Meanwhile, hundreds of American merchantmen continued to be captured during the first phase of what became known as the Quasi-War. For the rest of 1797 and into 1798, the fitting out and recruitment of sailors for the three authorized frigates proceeded painfully slowly under the control of the War Department. Until finally, on April 30th, 1789, Congress authorized a dedicated cabinet-level Department of the Navy with Revolutionary War veteran Benjamin Stoddart as the first Secretary of the Navy. All over the country, war fever had broken out. 
under the Federalist slogan, millions for defense, but not a cent for tribute. A massive defense buildup had begun, especially in the Navy, where by 1798, it consumed 30% of the national budget, equivalent to about $1.5 trillion today. The remaining three original frigates were funded, and American naval vessels were authorized to capture any ship flying French colors. It seemed at this point as if war was inevitable. As the first three frigates, the United States, the Constitution, and the Constellation, were finally finished and put to sea, Humphrey's design choices were validated. The ship's captains all praised the vessels, and the words of Captain Barry, the commanding officer of the USS United States, No ship ever went to sea answers her helm better, and in all probability will surpass everything afloat. The news of the American frigate's early cruises, along with the smaller warships that had been authorized by Congress earlier in the year and converted from merchantmen, seems to have driven the French privateers from the North American coastline, much to the disappointment of the frigate captains who had been waiting for years for a chance to put to sea and combat these privateers. But Benjamin Stoddart had plans to secure more than du- But Benjamin Stoddart had plans to secure more than just the American coastline. He sent the frigate captains south to the bases of the French privateers among the French colonies in the Caribbean, accompanied by a squadron of shallow drafted sloops who would do most of the work in chasing down pirates into shoal waters. The frigates would be the muscle to fend off French frigates and show the world that the United States now had a navy of its own, as well as convoy American merchants in the area. After several months of Caribbean duty, on February 6th, 1799, Captain Truxton of the USS Constellation spied a pyramid of canvas on the horizon, which he took to be a ship of war, and gave chase. The frigate was French, but her captain had no intention of fighting another frigate. The French frigate L'Insurgente, which had been flying American colors in an attempt to avoid combat, lowered the American flag and hoisted the French tricolor, preparing to engage. On board the Constellation, weapons were distributed, cannons were made ready, and snipers climbed up the masts, ready to fire down on the enemy sailors once they were within range. The Insurgente was still hoping to avoid a fight, and positioned itself well on the weather gauge if it did come to a fight, running northwest with the Constellation close behind. The Constellation was gaining on the fast French frigate, but a squall was coming in and both ships were battered, although the L'Insurgente got the worst of it. Finally, when the Constellation was in range, Captain Truxton ordered the Constellation's starboard guns to fire double-shotted cannon charges directly into L'Insurgente's hull. The destruction was terrible. There would be no negotiation. The L'Insurgente responded by firing a broadside, in typical French naval doctrine, up into the Constellation's rigging, attempting to disable the American ship's propulsion, and then be in a position to maneuver to where the American ship could not return fire and be forced to surrender. As the two frigates traded fire, the French sailors, with many of their shipmates now dead or wounded, began to abandon their posts. Sensing that he could not win a gun battle, the French captain called for boarders but was outmaneuvered by Truxton, who crossed the bow of the L'Insurgente, again crushing her with a double-shotted broadside. The ships pulled on to parallel courses, trading broadsides. This was to the advantage of the Constellation, who had heavier 24-pound cannonballs compared with the lighter 12-pound cannon of the L'Insurgente. The heavier cannon were a disadvantage when maneuvering the ships for combat, 
but when alongside, they dealt an overwhelming amount of damage to the French ship. After exchanging broadsides, two ships pulled apart and each began making hasty repairs before returning to the fight. The casualties the Constellation suffered were far less severe, and repairs were quickly made. The French frigate, though, was in poor shape. Her masts were falling down, her crew was mangled, and her captain, seeing the inevitable result of the engagement, hauled down the French tricolor flag. It was the first victory for the United States Navy. A prize crew was dispatched, and the two ships, one victor and the other prize, were sailed together under American flags north for repairs and supplies at home. As the quasi-war with France entered its second year, the nation celebrated Truxton's victory, and when news of the Royal Navy's decisive victory over the French in the Battle of the Nile reached the shores of North America, it seemed to confirm to President Adams that a land force was an unnecessary expense, since it seemed unlikely that a French army would be landing in the foreseeable future. The frigate deployments of 1799 had cut American shipping losses by two-thirds, and the remaining three frigates were nearing completion. Captain Truxton, in command of the Constellation again, arrived in the Caribbean for a second cruise on January 20th, 1800, and assumed command of the four other ships in the area, forming a squadron. There, he learned that two French warships were known to be in the area, and was determined, in his own word, to give them a fair challenge to come out and ordered the ship emptied of every extraneous item because he claimed that he would soon need the room for 500 prisoners within the week. Captain Truxton soon had his chance to attempt to make good on his claim. Spying the masts of a warship on the horizon after leaving port, Captain Truxton gave chase, and at 8 o'clock at night, the ships were close enough that Captain Truxton had shout over to the French warship demanding its surrender. This was an audacious claim, considering the French frigate La Vengeance which I'm just going to call the Vengeance, was both a larger ship and carried 54 guns to the Constellation's 38. The Vengeance responded with a cannonball, and the fight was on. The Vengeance fired the first broadside, and keeping with French naval strategy, high into the sails of the Constellation attempting to disable them. The Constellation responded firing double-shotted rounds at 300 yards into the Vengeance's hull. Fighting on parallel courses, the two crews fired into each other as fast as they could, pounding each other ruthlessly. Cannonballs caused wood splinters to fly, and paling men as their shipmates continued reloading cannons around them, with no time to pause for the wounded. Truxton would write that it was as sharp an action as ever could be fought between two frigates. Twice the ships seemed as if they would collide, and their captains blew trumpets for boarding parties, but twice the ships drew apart just in time. The battle raged for five hours under the moon, until one in the morning when the French frigate's guns finally fell silent in surrender. Just at that moment, though, the mainmast of the Constellation, pounded by the relentless French cannon fire into the rigging, fell over with a loud crack into the sea, along with all of the snipers and top men on it. Promptly unsurrendering, the Vengeance whose sail was intact and whose captain was more than happy to escape with the valuable gold cargo he was transporting intact, sailed off into the dark night on the verge of sinking while the constellation floundered. Heading home again for repairs, this time there would be no disputing the victory. Against L'Insurgente, the constellation had been the better ship, and the L'Insurgente could rightfully claim to have started at a disadvantage due to the more severe storm damage. Against the Vengeance, however, it was a clear-cut victory.
the outgunned constellation had outfought a more heavily armed vengeance, dealing more damage and suffering fewer casualties. The deciding factor had been the superior training of the American crew under Captain Truxton, whose rate of fire was nearly double that of the French frigate, more than making up for the difference in cannon and broadside weight. President John Adams by this point was eager to make peace with France and sent a second envoy to Paris aboard the USS United States. After an eventful voyage in which the United States almost sunk in a storm off the Spanish coast, the envoy arrived in Paris to find a young Napoleon Bonaparte had seized power in France and was eager to end the fight with the United States so France could focus on the true enemy, Britain. Napoleon described the three-year-long quasi-war as a femme l'école, and while the final treaty did not obligate the French to pay for American shipping losses as hoped, it formally released the United States from our mutual defense treaty of 1778 with France. Over the next few months, as word of the treaty over the next few months, as word of the treaty slowly spread around the world, hostilities between the two countries ceased. The Quasi War was over. Back at home, the election of 1800 was bitterly fought, and in the end, Thomas Jefferson defeated John Adams after one term and assumed the presidency. Jefferson's Republican Party campaigned on an anti-tax, anti-debt platform, which, arithmetic being what it is, necessitated deep federal spending cuts. Standing armies and navies were also opposed by Jefferson's Republicans, and since hostilities against France had just concluded, these cuts were felt deeply by the Navy. Most of the Navy's ships were sold and put into merchant service, and two-thirds of all active-duty naval officers were informed that their services were no longer needed during the first few weeks of the incoming administration. The various navy yards that had existed in major port cities were closed and consolidated into one, currently under construction, Washington Navy Yard. Yet, events conspired to save the fledgling United States Navy from the anti-navalist impulses of the Republican Party. Just nine days into his administration, Jefferson received the first of a series of increasingly alarming dispatches from the Mediterranean. If you remember the pirate states of the Mediterranean, Morocco, Algiers, Tunis, and Tripoli, they existed through a perpetual state of tribute extracted from the trading nations of Europe, and then through piracy and slavery when the tribute was not forthcoming. Previous administrations had dealt with these pirate states through a combination of payments, threats, and promises. But now, as more American ships began to trade in the Mediterranean, the leaders of Tunis and Tripoli, who had agreed to treaties safeguarding American commerce for far less than the huge sums that we were paying the day of Algiers, demanded more money in return for their promises of protection. It was under these circumstances that Jefferson broke from his publicly anti-navalist roots right to James Madison, his Secretary of State, that I know that nothing will stop these eternal increases for demand from those pirates but the presence of an armed force, and it will be more economical and more honorable to use the same means at once for suppressing their insolences. Jefferson ordered a small squadron of four ships led by the Humphrey Frigate President to sail from Norfolk to the Mediterranean and deal with the Tripolian threat under Captain Richard Dale. But the mission dragged on as Jefferson learned the hard way what he had been warned about as our ambassador to France decades earlier, that the Barbary pirates could not be defeated without a large-scale military operation, which would end up being far more expensive than paying even the highest tribute demands. But Commodore Dale's squadron, which sailed to the Mediterranean in 1801, was no closer to resolving the issue by 1803. 
a relief squadron was sent under the disastrous command of Richard Morris. As Dale's squadron returned home for repairs, Morris's squadron seemed to spend most of its time in port, probably at the demand of Morris's pregnant wife, whom he had brought along for the cruise. Morris was eventually recalled, court-martialed, and dismissed from the Navy. Thus far, the operations in the Mediterranean had exposed how a bunch of lightly armed but shallow draft Barbary vessels could elude the deep draft American frigates, could cost a fortune, and dramatically eroded American prestige in the region. Jefferson's predictions to Madison seemed to be all unraveling. The squadron's third commander, Commodore Preble, finally arrived in the Mediterranean in command of another 44-gun Humphrey frigate, the USS Constitution, in September. Preble was a Revolutionary War veteran and proved himself to be both a stern disciplinarian and spoiling for a fight. After a brief show of force off Morocco to ensure the Moroccan emperor's continued neutrality, Preble sailed the Constitution east. Meanwhile, the frigate Philadelphia, under command of Captain Bainbridge, was executing Preble's orders to maintain a blockade off the Tripoli Harbor when the Philadelphia was grounded and captured. This was a huge loss for the American fleet. The Philadelphia was the second largest ship in the American squadron, and it would now be by far the most powerful ship in the Bashaw of Tripoli's pirate fleet. Preble decided that the only course of action was to destroy the captured Philadelphia. For this order, Preble tapped the dashing Lieutenant Stephen Decatur, commanding officer of the Brig Enterprise, to lead the raid. Transferring his crew of 75 who had not been told of their mission until getting underway to prevent leaks to a captured native trading vessel, which he renamed the Intrepid, Decatur sailed under orders from Commodore Preble to board the frigate Philadelphia, burn her, and make your retreat good. When these orders were read aloud to the crew of the Intrepid, after safely at sea, every man volunteered for the raid. Approaching the harbor with all but a few men hidden below decks, the captured Tripolian vessel looked like just any other merchantman as it approached the harbor at night under the guns of the vast defenses of Tripoli Harbor. As the Intrepid approached the Philadelphia, the ship's pilot called out in Arabic with an invented story of losing both anchors in a storm and requested to tie up to the Philadelphia for the night. The Tripolian guards agreed, and the Intrepid moved slowly closer and closer until the ships were directly alongside when Decatur gave the order, Board! Eighty American sailors, armed to the teeth with Decatur the first aboard, climbed up the ten-foot-higher hull of the Philadelphia and through the gun ports, using only knives and swords to keep the assault silent and to avoid alerting the harbor defenses. The assault was short, savage, and a complete rout. Some of the Philadelphia's guards jumped overboard and swam for the city. The ones that stayed to fight were killed to a man, while the American attackers suffered only one minor casualty. Immediately after routing the defenders, the crew of the Intrepid set fire to the Philadelphia, and the men scrambled back to the Intrepid to evacuate as alarm bells began ringing in the city. Soon, the fleeing Intrepid began to take fire from two guard boats, and the harbor defenses as Preble sailors strained at the oars of the Intrepid to pull her out of range and into the harbor channel. Finally out of cannon range, and looking back, the men began to cheer as the walls of the defending castle and city were lit by the orange light of the burning Philadelphia, which continued to burn to the waterline throughout the night. This was, in the words of British Admiral Horatio Nelson, the most bold and daring act of the age. 
By the time the news of the capture of the Philadelphia reached the United States, the ship had already been burned for a month. But not knowing of Decatur's heroic raid, the news of the Philadelphia's capture caused Thomas Jefferson and his cabinet alarm. Jefferson sent a reinforcing squadron and convinced Congress to levy higher taxes to expand the fleet under the command of Captain Samuel Barron, who, because he was more senior than Preble, would take command of the combined Mediterranean squadron upon his arrival. Still, Bashaw Yusuf of Tripoli was confused about the whole war. His ransom demands were relatively small, certainly much smaller than his demands on countries such as Portugal and Sweden, and much, much less costly to the United States than continuing a distant war. Nonetheless, after the burning of the Philadelphia, he also began to get worried and sent out a number of peace offerings, including a no-cost, five-year truce offered to Commodore Preble, which Preble refused. Instead, Preble used his frigates and borrowed Italian gunboats, launched a series of savage raids against the Tripolian harbor, and captured and destroyed Tripolian gunboats, and caused Yusuf to lower his proposed ransom demand for the crews of the Philadelphia, who were still being held in captivity. But still, Preble continued to refuse. Finally, knowing that his relief was coming soon, Preble lent his support to a coup. Now I'm going to take a slight diversion into Tripolian politics. The Karamanli dynasty was founded in 1711 when Ahmed Karamanli seized control of the city from warring factions and created a de facto independent state focused on Mediterranean piracy, slavery, and ransom extortions while extending his rule over the tribes in the surrounding desert. But after Ahmed died in 1745, his successors proved less capable. Yusuf and Hamid's father Ali was so weak that he was a virtual prisoner in his own harem, and upon his death, Ali divided the country among his three sons, which inevitably led to a civil war where Yusuf murdered one of his brothers, Hassan. In the chaos of the civil war, the Karamanli dynasty was briefly overthrown by a rogue Ottoman officer who returned the city to direct Ottoman rule before the unpopular Hamet Karamanli regained the throne. In 1795, Yusuf, the current Bashaw of Tripoli, came to power after he tricked his brother Hamet into leaving the city on a gazelle hunting expedition. After leaving the city, Hamet's supporters, and the traditional way of gaining power in Tripoli, were all slaughtered. And when Hamet returned to the city, he found the gates locked against him and was forced into exile in Egypt. All of this is leading up to the fact that in November, when Samuel Barron replaced Preble as the Commodore of the Mediterranean Squadron, a new plan was in motion to solve the Tripoli problem. William Eaton, the U.S. envoy to Tunis, along with Marine Lieutenant Presley O'Bannon, and seven other Marines arrived in Alexandria, Virginia to help Hamet Karamanli, Yusuf's younger brother, raise a mercenary army and march to Tripoli. Financed by the Americans, Hamet raised a motley force of about 500 mercenaries and marched them 600 miles across the desert with O'Bannon's Marines, where they would be met by a small American squadron and managed to capture the Tripolian city of Derna. Spurned by his loss and the unsuccessful counterattack to recapture the city, as well as a greatly reinforced American squadron blockading his harbor, Yusuf finally agreed to terms. For $60,000, he agreed to release prisoners from the Philadelphia and forego all future tribute claims as long as the city of Derna was returned to him. It was not the march on Tripoli that William Eaton or Hamet Karamanli was hoping for, but it was a satisfactory end to the war that had been dragging on for five years at this point. 
The Americans were informed via intelligence reports written in invisible ink by Captain Bainbridge, who along with the crew of the Philadelphia were remaining as hostages inside the city of Tripoli, that Hommet had no political support inside Tripoli, and that if he was put on the throne, the Americans would be in the position of supporting an unpopular ruler indefinitely, and would likely have to go to war again against anyone who managed to depose him. Despite failing to take back his throne, the historically unverified Marine Corps legend states that Hamet expressed his gratitude to Lieutenant O'Bannon and his Marines by presenting O'Bannon with a sword, which the Marine Corps Officer Marmaluke sword is patterned off today. The Marines also got a cool line in their hymn, Not bad for the work of eight Marines. The Senate ratified the peace treaty with Tripoli in April of 1806, bringing an end to Jefferson's long and hugely expensive war. The Navy came out of the First Barbary War. And you gotta know that when anything's ever called the first, that there's bound to be a second, so you just gotta stay tuned for the next pirate-busting episode that's coming up soon. With the beginnings of a naval tradition, a core of experienced officers, and invaluable operational experience. It also showed the rest of the world that the United States was willing and able to project military force abroad to defend its interests. Still, although the phrase had not been invented yet, Jefferson was hoping for a peace dividend and began looking to downsize the expensive navy, despite rumblings in the not-so-distant horizon that the need for a navy had not yet gone away. Britain and France were still locked in their titanic power struggle known as the Napoleonic Wars, and still violating the rights of American shipping as they sought to deny the other side the advantage of supplies, trade, and manpower at sea. The public and Congress began to see the role of the Navy as that of coastal defense, and Navy spending began to focus on small, one-cannon gunboats and harbor defense. The effects of this would prove to be significant in just a few years, but the story of the War of 1812, sometimes called the Second War for Independence, will have to wait until next week. This is the end of the second episode of the U.S. Naval History Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. As I mentioned, next week's episode will be a little bit shorter and cover the War of 1812. As always, if you have any questions or feedback, please reach out to me at Twitter or Instagram at U.S. Navy Podcast or by email at U.S. Naval History Podcast at gmail.com. And obviously, here is the obligatory podcast plug to rate and subscribe as well as tell all of your friends about the podcast if you enjoyed it. Post it on Shit My LPO Says, The Reactor is Critical, or whatever other Navy Facebook social media page you happen to visit, because ultimately, I'd like as many people as possible to be able to listen. I'll see you next week, and thank you very much for listening.